1: Hi, this is Susie Quattro and you are listening to Pantheon Podcast.
0: Hey guys, thanks for joining My Rock Moment. So today we have on legendary rock photographer Henry Diltz. He shot more than 250 album covers and was a key figure of the LA music scene in the 60s and 70s, particularly in Laurel Canyon. So for those of you that remember, we had Henry on last year discussing some of his favorite moments, from shooting the Doors, Morrison Hotel, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash album covers, all the way to Woodstock. But I realized that we only scratched the surface during that discussion, and we never made it past 1969. So today, we're going to step into the 70s and cover the Eagles' first two album covers, Jackson Brown's debut album, meeting James Taylor for the first time, and even Woodstock 99. So let's get started.
2: It's getting to the point. Where am no I am sorry Sometimes it hurts Sometimes
0: Henry, I'm so glad to have you on because last time you came on was a year ago. You came on My Rock Moment and we covered so much. We talked about Morrison Hotel, uh, the album cover, um, the Doors, Crosby, Stills and Nash. We talked about Woodstock. You probably remember but we did not even scratch the surface on the (laughs) seventies.
1: The Eagles and Jackson Brown and and that stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: America. There was so Ah, much. I know. I know there was so much we didn't get to cover. Um, So I had to have you back and we needed to continue the conversation.
1: Yeah. America. My, 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 my good friends. They're probably my best friends, that group, you know dewey and 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 Jerry Beckley. and I think I did five or six of their album covers.:
0: How did you even get connected with them? Because they just came I mean, they came on the scene like
1: mm-hmm. a yeah. Well, my graphic artist partner, Gary Burden, the art director, he and I were doing everything for lookout management, which then became Geffen Roberts. And they, you know, they managed, you know, so many people, CSN and the Eagles and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Poco. And America came to town and, and they scooped them up somehow. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's where we always got, you know, Geffen or, Ro- or Elliot Roberts would call us and say, yeah, you know, like one day they said, will you go over to the Sung songwriter's house, Jackson Brown, and go over there and take a picture of him for an mm-hmm. album cover. You know, Gary Byrne used to always say, they. you know, their attitude was, well, we'll put it in a brown paper bag. It doesn't really matter, you know. (laughs) But of course, it did matter. Album covers were were so important and so popular. And I mean, I just had an Uber driver today telling me we were talking about album covers. And he said, what a shame, you know, that because people used to sit and look at those and read all the liner notes and. Stare at the picture, and now that art form is just gone.
0: Yeah, the album art was just as much a part of the experience, almost when you mm-hmm. bought a record back then, as the music was. Yeah. You know,
1: somebody got a better idea. You
0: know, <laughs> God, it's it's too bad. But so Giffen was the one that really connected you.
1: Yeah, Giffen and Roberts, Elliot Roberts. I mean, Elliot Roberts at first because he had Lookout Mountain Management. Lookout Management, it was called, and he lived on Lookout Mountain Avenue in in Laurel Canyon, and so did I. I lived at eight triple seven Lookout Mountain Avenue, and so did um Joni Mitchell. You know, lived at the other end, and so that was you know that was that was where we all lived. Lookout Mountain, and and you know I met him before he you know years before he teamed up with Geffen.
0: Oh, did you? When
1: he just Elliot himself handled. Neil, Joni, and CSN, mostly then.
0: Right, right. Well, that was my question for you because I didn't know how you connected with David Geffen. I mean, he was such a force that came in. He changed the whole Laurel Canyon scene. He changed the music
1: industry. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He was quite a force, yeah.
0: (laughs) But I didn't know how that connection was made because when he came in, he and Elliot, they became partners Mm -hmm. and, you know, they were a dynamic duo and I know that, they were kind of funneling their artists to you in a sense.
1: We were the, the the team, the photographic team, the album cover team, the you know, the publicity photo team. We just we did it all for them and, and it made it easy for them and made it easy for us, you know. Yeah. Oh, so because and you know, we just we knew all those artists personally anyway. I mean, as far as CSN and Joni and Neil and those people, we all had a history. So so we were perfect i mean gary Burton did every single one of neil's covers i think except for maybe one harvest but gary i mean for years you know um, uh, until he passed away a couple of years ago but he did every one of neil's he was you know one of neil's best friends so
0: no amazing uh amazing partnership there that lasted until he passed
1: yeah and then the one day they called and said yeah let's go over to this guy's house you know ja- I would get the call from Gary. He would say, hey, they want us to go over to this kid, you know, this songwriter, Jackson Brown. We never met him. You hadn't met him? No. And we knocked on the door, you know, and he, he opened it. Well, Let's see, where was it? It was, um, uh, I'm trying to think now, if it was his father's house in in Pasadena or if it was his house near the Hollywood Bowl. Um, I'm just trying to think. You know, it was near the Hollywood Bowl. That's the one. It was L.A. house, yeah. So you know he was he was very nice. He said, "Come on in, hey, you want a beer?" We gave us a beer. Want to hear some songs? And he sat down at the piano, you know, and hit a chord and stuff. You know, oh, people look around you. You know, and I went, oh my god. You know, we had a little concert right there, standing next to the piano. It was beautiful. And then we went out in the backyard and we took portraits and stuff. He had a little. A little garden shed and we took some pictures of him standing in there looking out the little window and then just some portraits and we're just you know taking pictures and and i would take 500 pictures whenever we do an album cover and then gary burden would look through them all and come up with the one here's the cover you know he was so good at that just picking the one out and um so you know, he was talking, Jackson tells the story that he was talking to Gary on the phone about the cover and Gary was found some pictures he liked and Jackson was looking up on his wall and it was a water bag from his father's car. When you used to drive across the desert, you'd have to put a canvas bag of water on your hood, on the on the grill to keep it cool. Because when the hot air came through, it would cool it with that bag and, keep your car from overheating in the old days. And, and Jackson was like, he said, well, Gary, it could be anything. It could be a, a water bag. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in another conversation, he had said something about, yeah, album covers. It's kind of like, you know, when the Indians would have their shields. You know, they have a shield with their logo on it or their their thing, you know, their brand, whatever that was. And, and, and he thought that's what album covers. I mean, he, he has an active imagination about album covers. But he <laughs> said, hey, it could be a water bag. And Gary made it a water bag. It was so great. Yeah. How? What year was this? Uh, I think 72. Oh,
0: 1972. Yeah, okay. He
1: might have taken him in 71. I think his first album came out in 72, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so at this
0: point, Geffen and um, Roberts had formed Asylum.
1: They had. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. So now Jackson had a label and he was getting out there. And what did you think when you first met him? Did you see the raw talent?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. The first the first line of that song, just just the chord and his voice. He has a very plaintive voice, you know, Mm -hmm. and his songs are kind of like anthems. You know, they're just full of heart and full of, you know. But when he just played that chord and went, oh people, look around you, you know. <laughs> wow. He had me from the first line, you know. He's still one of my absolute favorite singer, songwriters, singer and songwriter, you know.
0: Yeah, you guys have stayed friends, haven't
1: you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, we all used to see each other a lot more when the Troubadour was our stomping ground. And, we you know, you knew that every night you could go down there and everybody would be there, you know. Doctor, my eyes
0: have seen the years and the slow. Even when I drive past the Troubadour today, I think about your, uh, you know, the Monday night hootenanny nights that you guys all had. And what a breeding ground that was for incredible talent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I there was a little, um, well, there's always been a bar in the front room. and But there used to be, McCabe's used to have guitars on the wall. They had a little, a little um, uh, kiosk where they would sell strings and picks and stuff. In case people needed them in the club, and they had a wall full of guitars at one end of the bar. Then they had some tables in there, and but any, you know, we everybody would meet in that bar. You know, we'd go in and look at the show going on, but then we'd all go back out to the bar. I remember one night, uh, David Crosby and uh, Roger McGuinn said, "Hey Henry, come and meet the, our friend who just got here from Missouri. His name's Gene Clark, and we're going to form a group." We're gonna call it the beef eaters, because, <laughs> oh, no. But of course, it became the birds, right? Yeah. Spelled differently, like beetle is yep. spelled right differently. Yeah, and it begins with a B, and it's you know, it's in line with the times, you know. <laughs> Roger McGuinn was such a beetle fan. I mean, on those those hoop nights, you know, the open mic night, he would always get up and. And play just solo on his 12 string. He'd sing Beatles songs.
0: Was that well received at the time? Because things had changed, and you're at the troubadour and you're meeting the birds, you're meeting Roger McGuinn, and you're meeting David Crosby and Gene Clark. But Roger McGuinn was already working there and he was playing sets, but he was electrifying rock music. Yeah. How was that received by the audience, which I would presume was probably diehard folk fans yeah. at the well, time? Well, you
1: know, it's funny. The audience liked it. That was fine. Um, Doug Weston, who was a big, tall man who owned the Troubadour. And so we, we played there many times. And, you know, I always tell people, because people today don't realize, back in the, in the 60s, when you played a folk club, you always played the whole week six days. I mean, now nobody plays a week, right? It's one night. Yeah. One night. And then always oh, we, we never the only time we do one night was a college concert sometime in the afternoon or, or, or in the evening, you know, and then move on to another college. But whenever we played a club, it was all week. So we were in New York. We were traveling around in New York when when we saw the Beatles and we completely kind of changed uh, yeah, our our sound, you know, we got electric Guitars and electric bass. I electrified my banjo. Eventually, we got a drummer. So the Beatles were responsible for kind of folk rock. Right. Happening. And then you had the birds and the Buffalo Springfield. All those people were basically folk singers mm-hmm. who went electric. Um, so so we, we were booked at the Troubadour for a week. So Monday afternoon, we're in there setting up our instruments, doing a sound check. We have our electric instruments, and Doug Weston comes down from his office and says, Hey, wait a minute. He said, I we don't have electric music in here. He said, I hired the modern folk quartet. And I said, We said, Well, Doug, this is us now, you know. We've got electric <laughs> because it's And so is everybody. I won't have that in my club, you know. And here we we signed the contract to play there, and he wanted us to go back to what we used to be. So we made a deal with him. We said, all right, we'll do the first set will be folk music. And then the second set you you have to let us be who we are now, play electric music. So that was great fun. We do our first set and say, "Okay, everybody, stick around because we've got a, you know, some other guys coming out. I think we call them Your Friends or something. We had, a, <laughs> you know, we just we didn't say we're going to come back with electric instruments. We just said, "Stick around for something really interesting," you know. Next exactly. Set. So exactly.
0: That was, that was fun. And you didn't change your name to the Modern Folk Rock
1: Quartet. No, No, we sure didn't. (laughs) But that, that, the fact that the Beatles, I mean, and at the same time, Bob Dylan was writing a talking blues for Woody Guthrie. He was really into Woody Guthrie and he kind of, you know, very smart guy. And he started making up his own words. And between that and the Beatles, it just completely changed the face of of popular music because now, because, uh, you know, I always say Frank Sinatra never wrote any songs, Elvis Presley never wrote any songs. There were songwriters and singers, and the singers would get the songs from the songwriters and, and sing them. But after the Beatles, you had people like Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and, you know, Paul Simon, and people, and Neil Young and Stephen Sills. Trying their own head, writing their own feelings, their own thoughts. Right. You get someone amazing like like Joni Mitchell, you know, and you get her heart and her mind and her words in the song. That's that's just amazing. I mean, it's double, you know, it's just a, it doubles it. Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Joni so Mitchell was, was out of this that world.
1: Was a, a sea change in the music industry, you know, and a, kind of a flowering, a renaissance, you know, the singer songwriter thing that happened. Big time in Laurel Canyon, just because that's where all the, all the musicians lived. Mm-hmm. The Single people lived up there, and you, you get a little place for not too much money, and you were up in the country. Five minutes from Sunset Strip, you'd be out in the country. Families didn't live there because there were no lawns or sidewalks or anything. It was all hilly curves and, and, and houses up on the side of the, the mountain. Oh, great days, wonderful days. Yeah, and
0: it's an interesting thing about Joni too because while that sound started to be electrified, right? Folk yeah. became folk rock, she kind of stayed true for many years to her folk roots, yeah. and she found success as a folk singer when the landscape was changing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could, almost, I mean, Jackson Brown is almost a folk singer, you know, I mean, he's right his own feelings about life and stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 music of the folks, you know, now there's a drummer and a steel guitar player and an electric bass player, but you know. Music but, of the folks.
0: I yeah, love that. <laughs> <right. Yeah. laughs> hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
2: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
1: Okay,
0: guys, let's get back to the interview.
1: Well, I come from Alabama with my banjo on my knee.
2: And I'm bound for Louisiana, my own true love for the sea.
0: And you um, you mentioned James Taylor, and I know that you shot his first album out here. I know he'd done one with Apple, right, and he came out here. but how did how did you connect with him? Was it through Peter Asher?
1: It was I, you know i I often I'll say in a slideshow, I'd say a lot of these almost every one of these pictures started with the phone call in my kitchen in Laurel Canyon, you know that was I mean the phone would ring, you know. And it would be for Elliot or it would be Gary Burton saying, hey, we got to go do. And um, so one day it was Peter Asher. He said, because I knew him around from the Troubadour and, uh, you know, and people. And uh, he was working with uh, Linda Ronstadt. And, and you know, we all we all knew each other. And he called up. He said, could you come down to my house today, this afternoon and photograph this guy that I just brought over from England? And I I, I, I hadn't heard of him, you know. I walked in the living room and he was he was sitting on the far side of the room, sort of behind the piano, with his back to a window on the carpet, and he was just finger picking his guitar. He was finger picking "Oh, Susanna," oh, uh, you know, "Come from Alabama," yeah, but he was picking it like it sounded like a music box. It was so beautiful, and being a musician. It blew my mind, you know, just like Jackson first, you know. Oh, people, look at me. I mean, wow, I know. <laughs> it's song, you know. And I just, wow, I got down on my knees, you know, and took a few pictures. I said, oh, could you play that again, you know? And then I said, we need to go outside where we can get some good light. And we went to a, a place off Barham Boulevard where there was kind of a musical commune a couple of houses and some oh. little beds and tents and things was called the farm and friends of mine lived there and i knew there were these little shacks and and little little barns and things which are really kind of kind of folksy and and you know it's a good background a good uh, kind of a real a a real background without i mean i never did studio shots with you know lights and a and a gray paper yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we so we, yeah we went there and just you know we're just clicking away walking around and he leaned on this big post it was uh, and he just leaned on it and it, it looked per- it was a perfect portrait it framed you know his arms were out so it was kind of rectangular and it was just great and i took a black and white shot my uh, the, what peter wanted he didn't say will you do his album cover he said we need publicity pictures of this guy and that meant black and white because newspapers, this was sixty nine in the sixties. Newspapers couldn't print color.
0: Ah, uh, yeah,
1: right. So, and and you needed a black and white eight by ten glossy to hang outside the club, you know, and to get you know to send to papers and magazines. It was black and white. So, but it looked so good, and I thought, geez, I, I need to have a color slide of this to, to show in my my. I would have slide shows on the weekend to entertain my. My hippie friends, I would say my stoned hippie friends. and I, I mean, it just, it just, it just grew out of, you know, just, I don't know. We just had a slideshow one night and everybody loved it. So we wanted to do more. So I thought I need a color shot. So I said, wait, James, don't move. And I picked up my color camera. You had to have a black and white camera and a color camera, two kinds of film. And I took a few shots of that and Peter Ashworth saw that color one and, and said, wow, this would make a good album cover. You know, it's funny, uh, two or three of the, my biggest album covers were not meant. Crosby, Sills, Nash on the couch. We weren't looking for an album cover. We were shooting publicity pictures. Once again, they were recording their first album. No one had taken any pictures of them. They had nothing to put in Billboard to say that they were even singing together and recording, you know. So they needed something. And we went out that day and found that old house on the couch and but we weren't after an album cover, you know. Same thing with James Taylor. It wasn't an album cover job, but it, but it worked out. But you
0: captured the essence of them and their music so well. I mean, that's a testament to you. Publicity photos become album covers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, me and Gary. We sure were a yeah, team. Yeah, the two know, of because you. Because Gary drove the Ford station wagon, and uh, you know, we were all in the back, and, and we piled out. And <clears throat> he would stop at different places. Graham had seen that old house. And all. he said, somewhere around here is this great funky house with a couch in front of it. And then we drove up and down Santa, Santa Monica Boulevard, the little streets that went between Santa Monica and Sunset. We went up and down and then bang, we found that house, you know. But then it, it was also Gary picking that picture out. Because we took pictures in three or four different places. You know, we left that house and went to a, a used clothing store and took a bunch of pictures. And we took pictures back at Gary's house. And in his garage and and Gary the who said okay this is going to be the album cover right here." he had the you know he
0: had the that eye for saying all right yeah. <laughs> of everything you've done this is what we're going with
1: he had a great sense of taste and picking out something now when we traveled around we we always used to stop in secondhand stores and i mean people still do all the time we love them you know but in the 60s 70s couldn't resist a good secondhand store when we were driving around the country. And that's how I picked up a camera by accident one day. Um, but Gary, when you'd go to a secondhand store with Gary, you knew he was going to find the one treasure in the whole place. You know, we go in, I'd go over to the books or the records or try to find a, a nice coffee. This is from a thrift store, my, my favorite Brazilian coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> I would always go look at the coffee cups. And then he would walk up a couple minutes later with a big brass dolphin, you know, for five bucks. And you go, oh my God, you know, where do you, he, he would go right to the best thing in the store. <laughs> this is the same with pictures. He just had such good taste and vision. He could see the picture and see it as a cover.
0: Oh, so you guys were really a dynamic duo.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were.
2: So, walking
0: Of of Gary, I have to ask you because I know the two of you had an adventure with the Eagles.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I would love to talk about that night because you knew the Eagles, right? You'd known them yeah. from the Troubadour, I'm assuming, That's playing right. with they Linda. Were,
1: they were backing Linda. I mean, they weren't really a band that, that before. You know, they were a bunch of musicians that Linda kind of put together. Yeah, put together the bag. Oh, we need a drummer. Oh, we, you know, hey, I know a guy, you know, and just here from Texas. And,
0: yeah, because Glenn had been poking about with Long Branch Penny
1: Whistle, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther. Souther. Up, yeah, Long Branch Penny Whistle. That's right. And, uh, and Bernie Ledden was a folk, you know, banjo player. We knew him, too. We all knew each other. Just, you know, musicians, it's like a club, you know, if you're a musician, you're automatically in the club. I mean, when you travel around and eat, you, you meet some, uh, you know, another band. You're, you're pals right away. You know, your are friends. You might, you're in an airport and you see a group of guys walking. Hey, you know, that's, you know. The... <laughs> so, um, yeah, they they had started recording and they needed it. I think, you know, Geffen and Robert said, we need an album cover. take. And, and Gary and I had perfected this thing. It was really it was you know, I have to give Gary credit, you know, it was his I always liked to shoot outdoors. I never liked studios, you know, shoot out use God's light. That's what I yeah. would say. I never went there to, you go. I didn't learn lighting and I, I didn't like that, you know. I mean stand in front of the paper and make a face and oh, you know, the lights will pop and we'll take a picture. Uh so I always like to shoot outside. I I like to have real things happening, you know, that I could that I could document, you know. Sure. And, and and so we finally kind of put together the scene that we tried to take the group away from LA, you know, away from their girlfriends, away from their managers, away from their phones, so we could get their attention, you know, to really and and go somewhere and have a little adventure. And then Gary would say to me, needlessly, but he would always say, Henry, just shoot everything that happens. Films the cheapest part. <laughs> <You know? laughs> is right, right. right? But anyway, <laughs> it's exactly what I did, you know. And so, and of course, we have no cell phones or anything. So, once we get out there, the the, the eagles have nothing to do but hang out with us, you know, and kind of have fun and have an adventure. And
0: it was like six in the morning, though. By the time you got there, right?
1: Yeah, it was no probably five in the morning. It was dark. <laughs> we left the Troubadour at two two thirty in the morning when the bar closed. When the Troubadour closed. Oh my gosh. We got in Land Rovers and drove out there, you know, two, two and a half, three hours to the desert. And, uh, and we, that
0: was pre-planned or, or, yeah. or were you like, well, let's yeah,
1: just yeah, do no, I, well, Gary, Gary would tell me, Hey, here's what we're doing. We're going to leave the Troubadour when it closes and we're going to get there at dawn and shoot all day. So that's fine. That's fine. You know, I mean, well, you know, I, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't married. I didn't, have, you know, I didn't have kids or anything. I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> so another adventure. I mean, we took America up to Big Sur. We took America to a an Indian reservation. You know, we took we go places with with groups and 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 try to get them. You know, Steppenwolf and we went. Anyway, Mama Cass. We took her out to Palm Springs on the on the sand dunes and. Oh yeah. And then, yeah. then something, things, you know, organically, something can happen. It's just, it's an adventure, you know. It is. And when you you got to the desert, yeah. did you
0: all just say, "All right, this is where we're going to stop, and we're going to get some awesome
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. There was a secret mountaintop that some of uh, some Hollywood people, who was an actor and a comedian, that used to go out there. Actually, the rolling. The only Stones had been photographed up there on top of the same mountain that we did the Eagles, wow. I think, before before we went out there. So it was a known place. It was not a huge mountain, but, a, but a, a kind of a big hill, you know. I mean, it took you half an hour to walk up it. And then wow. up on the top was a, a big, a bunch of huge rocks kind of in a semicircle where you could, you know, perfect place for a campfire and to make camp and you could look down and see the whole desert all around it was just beautiful and so we got there before it was dark you know and we started climbing the mountain and we had peyote buttons with us which the eagles had gotten from some indian uh medicine man you know and and so we started nibbling these peyote buttons and and climbing the mountain and and we got to the top and everybody you know took their shirts off and they were in the sun and laughing they played some music and we just had a great time you know we lit a campfire and we had a, a, a coffee pot on the fire with a peyote buttons bubbling and they're making tea you know out of peyote. Wow. <laughs> and that made us just laugh and, and just appreciate things more i remember at one point later in the day i was sitting there looking out at the desert and i and there was a big cactus bush next to me it was the kind that has lots of little round paddles you know yeah yeah little heads and i'm sitting there and and so we're high on cactus so you have a bond you know (laughs) and i actually was saying hey you guys you're so lucky you get to live here and watch the, the sun go across the desert floor every day how beautiful what a natural life what a great position to be in where you can see that every day you know i or feel that every day, you're yeah. saying
0: this to the cactus,
1: i am saying that to the cactus, yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, and you and you know it's a living thing you, and it you is. can almost feel it, you can feel a life force kind of pulsing next to you, I mean, yeah. not boom, 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 but you know subtly you you can you can feel it's a living thing there, you know, I feel the same I way I've said, said that I told that story so many times, one time, somebody imitating the cactus said, "Well." Thank you, Henry, but we don't have opposable thumbs like you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that what someone said or did the cactus say that? No, no, <laughs> somebody said that's
1: probably what the cactus was thinking. Uh, I, that cactus is probably still out there. And, you know, this secret mountain, you couldn't get there by driving through the main gate. It wasn't a place where tourists went. It was it was at the way way at the side the edge of the of the park, and and it was bordered by by private land. So you had to mm. go up a dirt road and open a couple of gates to get through. So we had a, a guide, a guy who knew who had been out there before. Got it. You right where we were going, and we had this desert guide with us, a hippie guide, you know.
0: Oh yeah, so I'm we sure
1: knew exactly where we were
0: because <laughs> after a night at the troubadour and it being five in right. the morning. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to get lost.
1: <laughs> but the peyote buttons gave us energy, you know.
0: I'm sure they did.
1: Personal I'm energy, sure they did. You
0: know. And you mentioned Mama Cass as well the the natural, you know, the natural scenery that you like to be in. Mm. And are you referring to those famous photos of her, kind of dressed up in the their Arabian, um, yes, looking we call garb it
1: Cleopatra? Cleopatra. The- yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Cleopatra. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it is like that. Yeah yeah we want i mean she had these clothes and i think she talked to gary and gary thought well if you're gonna wear those it'd be great on the sand dunes you know out in the desert we gotta you know and uh, so you know we we this time same thing we we left at two or three in the morning somehow to get there at dawn we wanted to shoot at dawn and we took a limo this time yeah. we had a limo and it drove us there a couple of hours two two and a half hours And we got there just as as, as it got light and we set all the blankets up and we were ready. to. We started shooting a little bit. And then, it, it, you know, by eight o'clock, it was 100 degrees, you know, and her makeup was melting, running down her face, you know, her eyeliner and uh, because she's sweating. And so we had to pack everything up and go check into the Gene Autry Motor Hotel (laughs) and spend the afternoon around the swimming pool. And we went back at, like, 5 o'clock and did that picture.
0: It's, it's magnificent. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Uh, yeah. It was worth yeah. it. And she just got her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame.
1: Yes, she did. I know. I was very overdue. It was wonderful. I, I went down there. I had, a couple of my pictures were blown up there for the, the oh. ceremony. It was really nice, yeah.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, I saw pictures. I wish it could have been there. But mm. very well-deserved. Very well-deserved. Oh,
1: okay. I call your name, but you're not there. Was I to blame for being
0: jumping back to the Eagles you did their second album cover and I know it was Desperado mm-hmm. that looked like one of the most fun shoots I've ever seen I mean they're all dressed up and they're having a ball they yeah. are so in character yeah. JD Souther was there Jackson Brown was there Boyd yeah.
1: Elder the artist from Texas was there um, day. yeah I mean John Hartman their manager and um uh, uh, what's the name of the? Oh gosh, uh, glenn Johns, the English producer. He produced the Rolling Stones, and he produced uh, Desperado. Um, yeah, you know it was so much fun that we went. Back, we went two days. So oh, we one day, one day, and we had like a few hundred rounds of blank ammunition, and we had real cowboy clothes from Western costume that they'd gone and tried on, and that been used in movies and stuff. And we had real. Six shooters with blank ammunition. Well, they started shooting each other and going, and falling. In the dirt, you know, just kids playing cowboys. You know, and we shot up all the ammunition before the day was over, and everybody was bummed. And so we said, "Well, look, we'll get some more and come out tomorrow and do it some more." Yeah, it was so much fun. And so they would. In the end, we devised a thing where they come backing out of the bank with their guns blazing and the money bags. And the the posse was the roadies, you know, running down the street, at, you know, shooting at them, and they would have a great big shootout, out, ah, falling, Jack and <laughs> Brown was great, it's falling in the dirt, you
0: know. Oh my gosh!
1: I you know. Falling in the like dirt, they... lay there for a minute, and then sit up laughing, you know. <laughs> I mean,
0: the pictures was... were so elaborate; it was like you were shooting a movie.
1: Yeah. In fact, I did. I shot. I had a Super 8 movie camera. At one point, I was up on a ladder as they came backing out of the bank, and I had my Nikon Motor Drive in one hand and a Super 8 movie camera, waving it without looking through it. I was looking through the camera, and then, and I took a movie about a fifteen minutes worth of the gunfight, which the Eagles own now.
0: They own it. I was going to say, okay. Uh,
1: I mean, they wanted to. They they bought it from me for you know for a buck. I mean, oh. I you know. <laughs> they wanted to use it in the, in their show. They showed it, you know, on one tour, they showed it um, when they played Desperado, they showed that movie. Oh, okay. Okay. Cause I, I still, it's still mine to use for my own project, but, but they wanted to kind of own that and oversee that, you know?
0: Yeah. Cause I thought I saw some of the footage, maybe it was in the Laurel Canyon two-part documentary, mm, you know, on Epics
1: or, I, or the history of the Eagles well, we, Mary and I did a DVD called Under the Covers. I don't know if you ever saw that.
0: I didn't get to see yeah. that. No. Oh, I got to find it. Okay.
1: I'll get you one. Okay.
0: I love yeah. that.
1: You know, it was a great DVD. Um, and we had all oh, 25 hit songs in there, Eagles songs and everything. And it costs a lot of money. In fact, we had put this thing together and we couldn't afford the music. And then a Japanese DVD company... Contacted Warner Brothers and said, "We we need some kind of a project to sell to give away. If you buy one of our DVDs, we give you this special program." And somebody at Warner said, "Well, hey, you know those guys just made that thing, and they you know they knew about our thing we were doing." Right. The Japanese looked at part of it and said, "Oh, this is exactly what we want." And so they paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the music rights so that they could give it away at Christmas in Japan, yeah. Wow. So it came out briefly. It was distributed by Warner Brothers a little bit. Um, and then before long, the three years were up for the music rights, you know. I mean, it's right. been 20 years, 25 years now. So we can't put it out unless we pay, you know. We don't have to pay 250000 be more like maybe 150000 The rates have dropped a little bit still <laughs> but that's the hard part you know the music yeah.
0: yes. oh man oh that's
1: yeah one. remind me and i'll write that down i'll get you one yeah oh i would
0: i would love that i would love to see that
1: yeah everyone loves it they all say oh this is the best music thing i've ever seen you know it's got i think it's got the eagles gunfighting that we we you know that got the the doors Morrison. and we don't we we don't interview Jim, of course. We interview Raymond Zarek, but we interview Crosby and Stills and Nash, you know, and uh, Glenn Fry and and uh, Don Henley and bunches of people. Oh my gosh! I'm embarrassed yeah. that I haven't seen it. <laughs>
0: okay. okay. Oh, Henry, thank you. I can't wait.
1: Sure. another to keep the staring slowly across the
0: sky goodbye one last thing i wanted to ask you because we didn't get to talk about this last time and it was on my list <laughs> we, sure. are gonna, we are going to we are going to jump back to the 60s here sure Monterey Pop Festival
1: Right, right. You were there. Yeah. Once again, I mean, at some point, it's just, it's just all the friends, you know, because all your friends are doing things, you know, and there were, and there weren't a lot of photographers, really. There weren't. I mm-hmm. mean, I was one of the, the only kind of hippie guys that had a camera, you know, and I knew uh, uh, John Phillips really well, photographing their group, and I, I knew him even before the Mama's a Popus as, as a folk singer, and. um I ran into him somewhere and he said, hey, Henry, you know, I'm part producing this big concert. You want to be my photographer? I said, sure. Yeah. So that was it.
0: I mean, they put that that together, he and Lou Adler. And I think they had to wrestle it away from somebody who was already producing it. But they put it together in seven weeks. Yeah. I mean, it was astounding. And I guess what I want to ask you is because... When you read about the concert and everything, I mean, it was really a showcase for Southern California bands, Northern California Bay Area, right. you know, bands. Right. But there really was a bit of friction between the two scenes. I don't know. I to get your take yeah, I, you know,
1: I thought it was more like a great meeting. You know, I mean, we'd never uh-huh. seen Dennis Joplin, we'd never seen Jefferson Airplane, and they'd never seen the Association. You know, and and but the Buffalo Springfield and and so we all kind of got together. It was like a meeting of the Northern and Southern groups, you know, I, it yeah. was, I thought it was wonderful. I, I mean, behind the scenes, I don't know what went on, you know, but, but I mean, there's always disgruntled people no matter what. Right. 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 I mean, and yeah, that's
0: what I found so fascinating. I thought, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that there was a lot of, there There was some bad blood between the, you know, the LA bands. And the I Bay don't band. know about
1: that. I don't even, you know, Someone is just a couple of bunch of people have told me there's a new uh, video out about Woodstock 99. Have you seen that yes. and how horrible it was? And I, I haven't seen it yet, but I say I was there. I was the official photographer there, 69, 94, and 99. And I remember the 99 Festival and it was great. I mean, all the great music that played, you know. And, uh, and I, I didn't, I mean, Jewel was playing, um, George Clinton and oh gosh, I don't even know all, all the groups, you know, that, that played, yeah. uh, so many great groups and it was terrific music and the crowd was great. That 94 was the one where there were all the, the topless girlfriends on their boyfriend's shoulders, you know, sitting yeah. on <laughs> the crowd, you know? and, uh. So, I, you know, I thought it was great. I know I knew that at the end of the concert, when people were leaving, it took a while to get out and get to your car. So some people built little bonfires just on the ground where they were all standing. But they gather some of the trash and light it on fire, and warm their hands. And that and then some skateboarders made a bigger fire so they could jump over it. And it caught a truck on fire. That was the main thing. And then the state police came. And, f- and they had to clear everybody out to stop all this, you know, fires and stuff going on. And so they formed a long line with their billy clubs. They just walked slowly. There was no violence. There was no, you know, they walked slowly, slowly, pushing people out. And so there would be about a 20-foot uh, no-man's land between that police line and the hippies who were kind of running around. Some were taunting the police a little bit. N- nobody got, no. there was no confrontation. You know, and three girls took their tops off, and they were running back and forth, going, "Yeah, you know, to the police." And <laughs> <laughs> poor police, you know, had to, said, no smile, you know. <laughs> and then I remember Lisa Law, a photographer, a lady. Yeah. She went down and 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 stopped them and said, "Hey, hey, that this is not the way to go." You know, peace and love. And I have a picture of her standing there giving the peace sign with these. Three girls, topless. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of guys standing there kind of looking, whoa, you know. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I mean, that, I, I, so I don't know. People said, well, the groups, what was it, Rage Against the Machine? And I I think it was like
0: corn and
1: and, um, red hot chili peppers. Yeah. I mean, they were. Groups that kind of had a bit of friction in their music, but I, you know, yeah. I was right there on the main stage watching. What there were no fights, there was no. I've I got to see that thing, see what they see what they say. I
0: saw it, and it's you know what, this is a matter of perspective, right? It's what you choose to focus on. Um, yeah. And they chose to focus on, I think, the things that did not go right. And right. Michael Lang was interviewed in it, oh. and and I thought it was slightly unfortunate because Michael Lang you know, has an ama- amazing legacy with Woodstock. Sure. And he was interviewed for this um, documentary and then passed away shortly thereafter. Yeah, yeah. So it may have been one of the last projects he did. And that that to me, I felt a bit sad about. That's too bad. You know?
1: Yeah. It is yeah. too bad. But you know, it's like, you know, that nine hour Beatles movie that came out recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They had used that same footage right a year or so before and they'd made some kind of a film that showed the beatles breaking up and how bad it sort of was the bad blood between them Mm -hmm. and then somebody took that same footage and recut it into that beautiful nine-hour thing which i haven't seen but it showed the beauty of them working together but it's the same footage it's right. just how you, how you, you know, how you put it together. How
0: you p- put it together and position it, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I had read about Monterey Pop and I thought, oh, well, that's very interesting. But when you see the movie,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, it's absolutely outstanding. And you see these incendiary, incendiary performances by, you know, gosh, Jimi Hendrix, obviously right. Janice Joplin, right. you know, with Big Brother and the Holding Company, but Jimi Hendrix going out there, lighting his guitar on fire, I mean, no. blowing everyone's minds. Yeah. That, that is what I think of when I think of Monterey Pop.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, the only friction that I knew of was I think um, they wanted The Who to go on after Jimi Hendrix. And The Who said, no way. <laughs> We're not going to follow Jimmy Henrik. It's like there's an old musician joke. Oh, yeah, you guys will be going on right after the Rolling Stones.
0: We're not going on. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, there was that, but I I was backstage, on stage. I didn't see one fight, one argument. I mean, you know, behind the scenes, who knows? Who knows? Said, Who someone's knows? always disgruntled, right? Exactly.
0: Putting together something like that. But but so you're telling me that the reason Jimi Hendrix gave that type of performance was because he knew he was going on after the Who.
1: And yeah, <laughs> he had to pull out all the stocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what an incredible, incredible moment in time. I mean, just like Woodstock. And it's funny because when we ended our last... Um, episode we were talking about Woodstock and the incendiary performance that Jimi Hendrix gave there. Oh, yeah. But, you know, you. Monterey Pop was the start of that in terms of festivals and c- coming together. I mean, I guess you could say or they've said it before a meeting of all these tribes
1: coming together and creating yeah. an unforgettable experience for these people. Yeah. Yeah. It was the meeting of tribes. I mean, Monterey, it was the northern tribe and the southern tribe meeting. At Woodstock, 69, it was like all the all the tribes were, you know, we had love-ins in LA at Griffith Park on a Sunday. You'd get the word or somebody would say, hey, we're having a love-in, you know, this Sunday in the park. And you go there at noon and there'd be, you know, a few hundred hippies all dressed up and they bring guitars and blankets, and the kids would be there. It was just a great outing in the park and so we we would see a, a little musical thing you know and, and eventually they would set up a stage but in the early days it would just a, just go to the park and hang out, smoke a joint, talk to your friends, maybe sit and play a little bit with somebody Right. Um, and Woodstock was like that only times you know a. A couple thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, almost five hundred thousand people there. All of them, to love hippies. Virtually all of them. Everybody's smoking a little bit of God's herb, which kept it all so you know friendly. And there were no fights. There so were no. Right. Everyone had a good time, even in the rain. They had a good time because everybody. Mm-hmm. It was love. Three days of peace and music. You know. Yeah. Then that when they had the that other one, the, what is it, what was it called? The Rolling Stones. The Altamont. Altamont. I mean, that was more coke fueled, you know. Yeah. And with the, with the Hells Angels, and you know, I mean, at Woodstock they had the the Hog Farm was a was a commune from New Mexico. They were the the they had not the police station but the please station the please station yeah. yeah. Please
0: station and then Hell's Angels.
1: I right. mean <laughs> I know. I know. you're gonna get a very different experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean it Michael Lang's, you know, it was his personality and his his vibe that made Woodstock so so great. He was such a calm in the eye of the storm. I mean, mm-hmm. I probably said this the last time we talked, but but for the you know, the whole couple of weeks I was there while they were building the stage. He would be He would be there. He'd ride up on a horse or a motorcycle or a tractor or something to the state And somebody would run up and say, "Michael, such and such is happening or isn't happening or we can't find this or that's broken. And he would nod and smile and say, okay, we'll take care of it. He never said, what? Holy shit. You know, you never Thank saw you him. Not. He never blew it. Never lost his cool. He'd just say, okay, thanks. We'll, 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 we'll take care of it. You need somebody like that. Yeah, that's right. Oh, no. Whereas well, Altamont didn't have somebody like that. No, you
0: know? it didn't. It's, it didn't. Just money-making. The 60s, the 60s ended it. with a... <laughs> no, <it's
1: strange.
0: laughs> it was a strange time, yeah. Oh, Thank you for hopping on so last minute and doing this and just wrapping with me. And I, yeah, like I said, we'll have to have another... Um, another episode where I talked to you about Spinal Tap and the Beastie Boys and
1: sure. so many other stories post-1970s. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll keep That's, this going. Keep, it going, like, keep going a this few times time <laughs> <in> here. Absolutely. Come
0: on, man. Come on, sing Wow. All right. That was Jimi Hendrix playing Wild Thing Live, which of course was part of his set at Monterey Pop. So as always, a big thank you to Henry Diltz for being on My Rock Moment. If you haven't checked out my previous two-part episode with Henry, give it a listen. There are so many great moments discussed. All right, guys, thanks for being here with me today. Please don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate the podcast favorably, please. (laughs) And you can also find me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks, where you can shoot me a message. Okay, that's it for now, and we'll see you at the next episode.